So I have to admit that this passage is hard to get my mind around. It's uh, challenging and surprising and difficult to see this in what it actually is saying could be true. And I refer not to that tricky passage where it talks about Christ's afflictions somehow being lacking, or even that Paul, a self-proclaimed chief of sinners, could even say that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. No, I refer to that very first line where it says that Paul rejoices in his sufferings. Did you catch that? It's, it's not like we sometimes hear in Scripture or sometimes even sing about that we can rejoice in spite of our afflictions or suffer through adversity because we have faith. He says we're suffering in afflictions, and that just blows my mind. You know, oftentimes I think, well, you know, if there's a reward at the end of it, I can just sort of slug my way through. Uh, I, can, I can even persevere, closing my mouth. I won't complain because I know the benefit on the other side of whatever struggle might be coming. <clears throat> and I can even think about this sacrificial living for others. You know, it's, it's cold and flu season. Uh, we're getting hit in our household. Uh, and when our kids are up, late at night, I can even say, I will get up in the middle of the night, and help them as they're struggling. Willingly doing it. But I am not rejoicing. <laughs> and I will not rejoice all through the next day as I'm bleary-eyed. So how can Paul say that he, in his suffering, is rejoicing? And he speaks about that for the sake of the Colossians. Tighten this up a little bit more, we have to remember that the Colossian church is one that he had never met. These are strangers to him. And he says now that he is suffering for their sake, and he's rejoicing in that. That's superhuman. Why? What's the source of this joy? How can I connect to it in any way? Well, I think to understand this riddle, we need to look again at this passage and, and really grapple with everything else he is saying here. And so as we dive into it, let's, let's come to God and ask him to bless it. Will you pray with me? Father, your word, even as we read it, um, it confounds us. It is uh, a mystery. It's, it's deep and uh, it just even speaks to the truth that it's of divine nature. It's not, it's not something a man of his own uh, could compose. And so we, as we hear it, Lord, we pray that you'll give us hearts to understand, that you will change us through it, and that you'll make us new people um, by the power of your word through Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, we should start with the elephant in the room. I mean, what in the world is Paul talking about in verse 24 when he says that Christ's afflictions are lacking and that he is filling them up in his ministry? 
out of context that uh, seems to suggest that the work of Christ for salvation is somehow insufficient and that either Paul or the church in some way needs to fill in the gap, complete the work that he's left off. Now, if you've been around this church uh, or hopefully around any uh, faithful church, you will think that that just can't be. That we know throughout Scripture that, that Christ's work is sufficient for salvation. And even if we've read the context of Colossians, we know that that can't be. Paul, again and again, in the first chapter of this letter, talks about how amazing Christ is. <coughs> that he has done it all. That this is not a sort of we give in some, God gives in some to achieve the goal. You know, that's the kind of spirituality that I think that we float around in in our common day and some that gets into our hearts. We hear the idea that God gives us grace and blessing and we think, well, certainly, but only if we do our part. That old line that is not in the Bible, God helps them who helps themselves, is contrary to the message of Christ. Christ came because we cannot do anything on our own. We are hopeless and helpless. In fact, Colossians paints the picture that we are unwilling to turn to God for help. He says that in verse 21, you were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And that idea that apart from Christ, we don't want anything to do with God. That we want to seek our own way. No, it's not that we just need someone else to pick up and finish Christ's work. We don't need ourselves to finish what's lacking. Christ uh, is sufficient in what he has done for salvation. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. It's not as though he said, okay, I'm going to do my part, but basically I'm just now going to give you a roadmap to get out of the domain of darkness. No, he says, he delivered you. It's past action, completed work. Paul has, in chapter 1, given us uh, what may be in all of Scripture the most profound, the, the richest depiction of who Christ is. Verses 15 through 20, which we looked at a few sermons ago, speaks about the magnificence of Christ. Paul saying as much as that he is equated with God himself, the very God of creation, that all things came into being through him, and that he's the head of all things. And more so, that he has taken on flesh, that the God who created all things became man dwelling among us, and not simply walking among us as to give us an example. He came to reconcile us so that he would stand in our place and that the punishment for sin that was supposed to be for us, that he would take on himself. This is so 
definitive that in Colossians, whenever, whenever Paul's talking about Christ's work of redemption, it's all in the past tense. He says, you were alienated, but now you're delivered. He's reconciled you now in the body of flesh by his death. It's all past action. And you need to hear this, especially if you're one who struggles with the idea that God could accept you. You look at your life and you feel as though you're constantly coming up short. You see a history of sins that you struggle against, that you just can't seem to put to bed. You see a bunch of things in your life where you feel as though you are clearly unworthy. The message of Scripture is clear. You are worse than that. It's not as though you've even just fallen short of, of being accepted by God. There is nothing in you that could be worthy to come before God. And so we, we need Christ to deliver us. It can't be us and Christ. It can't be Christ's work lacking at all, or we are doomed. We need his work to be complete and whole. That's the gospel message. And there's a sense in which, as Paul lays it out here, that Christ's work is the culmination of this long plan that was there from the very beginning. In fact, you get the sense that it, was, it took the entire Old Testament to unfold this plan of God, for it to, to find its climax and fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. You see that throughout the New Testament, there are scores of passages that they quote from the Old Testament to say Christ has been the fulfillment. He is the end of the law in that he is the, the reaching its fulfillment and its culmination. And we look at, at certain passages that clearly stand out from the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before Christ, that that seem to be saying exactly what Christ has done in the flesh. Now you read Isaiah 53, that beautiful passage that, that depicts a suffering servant when it says that we like sheep have gone astray, but, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so that he was despised and rejected of men. And you get the sense that that is speaking of what Christ has done for our salvation. There is nothing lacking in Christ's work that was necessary to atone for sins. All right. Underline, highlight, exclamation point, you get the point. So why in the world would Paul say such a provocative statement like he does in verse 24, that there is even a crack open to say that there's something lacking in Christ's afflictions. Well, he says that because it's true. Because while in the flesh, while in the flesh Jesus did accomplish everything needed for salvation, 
in the flesh, there were things that he did not fulfill that were prophesied. Bear with me. Don't go storming off and, and saying that I'm off my rocker. There are things in Scripture that Jesus did not fulfill in the flesh. Now go back to those prophecies in Isaiah. I wish we could just spend time and, and read through Isaiah 40 to, to 55. Those chapters uh, depict this idea of a suffering servant that God would send. And it's a wonderful picture of what Christ would do, but not everything there was accomplished in the life of Jesus that we see depicted in the Gospels. Listen to what we heard again in Isaiah 49. Read that passage in its full. Here is this picture of this suffering servant. That God says to this servant that I will make you a light to the nations. He says it's, it's too small a thing or too light a thing for you just to be to Israel, but I'm going to make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This servant who is despised, deeply despised, it says, by nations, all kings shall bow to him. The picture is that this servant will conquer the world by his suffering. It's a recurring theme in the prophets. It's not just there in Isaiah, but that, that this message of salvation would go to all the ends of the earth. And it's not just for the prophets. It was there at the very beginning. If we read Genesis, God makes a promise to Abraham. And he says, through you, Abraham, all of the nations will be blessed. That God would do this was clear. But how he would do it was a mystery. Now, if you look at the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, there's certainly a lot about his life of suffering and misery. But when it comes to reaching the nations, the gospels are almost silent. Jesus spends his entire life, and in particular his three-year ministry, completely within the bounds of the nation of Israel. He spends most of the time up in this small town around the Sea of Galilee, and then he goes to Jerusalem to die. He's not off to these foreign trips to spread his message to distant lands. And whenever he has these uh, infrequent encounters with Gentiles, he says things that seem a little bit strange. He, he is encountered by this Canaanite woman. And instead of saying, here, let me tell you the good news of what I'm going to do and spread it to your people, he says in uh, Matthew 15, I have come only for the lost sheep of Israel. And, and should I give to you uh, the dogs what is for the children to eat at the table? Jesus, don't you get your mission that you're supposed to give to the rest of the world? Think about the passage, if you were here last week, preached from John 12. Here is an amazing account where Greeks actually come to Jesus to seek him out. They approach the disciples and they say, Sir, we want to see Jesus. 
And you're thinking, all right, this is on the cusp of worldwide explosion. Finally, this message is going to reach the nations, and Jesus' ministry is going to kick off. But what does Jesus do in response? His, when the disciples tell him these Greeks want to see him, he says, okay, the hour now has come. Now, uh, as he gives it in that metaphor, the kernel of wheat must go into the ground and die. And that's the turning point in the Gospel of John. He spends the rest of the Gospel going to Jerusalem, toward the cross, to die. Jesus, you missed your opportunity. It seems as though the suffering servant's mission to the nations has failed. Where's the fulfillment of, of what Isaiah was prophesying? Why, where did it become accomplished? How come it didn't happen in his flesh, this suffering servant? Well, that is exactly where Paul steps in and sees in his own ministry and life the living out of these afflictions, the afflictions to reach the nations as the light of the gospel. Now, we might at this point be tempted to think that what Paul is saying is that since Jesus didn't do it, I'm going to pick up the slack, that I will live on in his memory or even accomplish what he could have accomplished if he were still around. You know, you think about uh, great companies that look to their founder even years after they die uh, for what they should do as their mission statement as a company. You know, Steve Jobs dies and Apple needs to stay in line with everything that Apple's about. That Disney, you know, Walt Disney is, is long dead, but to this day, everything they do, whether it's the uh, obsessive cleanliness of their theme parks and the orderliness of, of their entertainment to movies that have to all be about this uh, person who can live their dreams and uh, creative imagination. But that's not how Paul sees things. That's not his picture of Jesus. Jesus wasn't the founder that the church then goes on to fulfill his ministry. For Paul, the whole point of what he says here and in the rest of his understanding of his ministry, the whole key is that Jesus, for him, is not absent. Do you hear that? Jesus is not absent. He's still at work. You can see this as he, as he describes Christ in all of his, his letters, and even here. Yes, the work of redemption, when he talks about Christ and what he was accomplished for our salvation, that's all past tense. But when he talks about Christ, it's in the present tense. He is, as he will say in verse 15, the image of the invisible God. Not he was. And throughout, he has now reconciled you. Chapter 3, he'll say, let Christ dwell in you richly. The, the idea isn't that Christ finished his job, now the church is in there, and, and he's there waiting at the finish line, and he's just going to meet you when you're done. The idea is that Christ is still at work, active, 
And so Paul sees his own life in light of this. And that's how we need to read verse 24. When Paul says that his sufferings are filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, he's trying to make it clear that it's Christ's afflictions. It's not Paul's afflictions suffering for Paul's sake. That word afflictions um, is frequently used when it talks about standing with God and facing persecution. It's the tribulation that those who stand with the Messiah will face. But that word is never used about Christ's atoning work. It doesn't say Christ's work on the cross is, is his affliction. So we know that Christ suffered when he was on the cross, but that is never called that. It's more frequently called uh, the persecution that, that comes standing with him. As, as he will say in Matthew 14, uh, Jesus will say to his disciples, you will be hated for my sake. Paul, in, in the other places in his ministry, you think maybe specifically of 2 Corinthians, goes into detail about he go, how he's going through afflictions for the sake of the gospel. It is in this affliction that is directed toward Christ, not to Paul. So Paul can say, I'm being afflicted by Christ's afflictions. And that's important because Paul's afflictions are not because he's, he's uh, hard to get along with or because he's rude or arrogant or any of those other qualities. It's not Paul, it's not the Paulness of him that's getting offensive. It's the Christness of him. It's what he's standing for that's drawing the conflict. And so it might sound hard for us to grasp, but it is Christ that is suffering. The, what is lacking in his afflictions are now being filled, albeit through Paul. In Paul's flesh, Christ's afflictions are being filled. Now that might seem hard for us to understand. How can it be in Paul's flesh but it be Christ's afflictions. How, could, how would we grasp that? But I don't think it was hard for Paul to grasp that. You may know the story of when Paul first met Jesus. In Acts 9, it, it describes it. Jesus has already been crucified, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. Now, Paul, who was called Saul back then, didn't believe that this happened to Jesus and began persecuting Christians. He tortured them. He stood as Stephen was stoned for his proclamation of the gospel. And he was off to Damascus with letters in hand to arrest Christians who were in Damascus. And on that road, as he's riding his horse, he encounters the risen Jesus. And it stuns him. It shocks him. He is knocked off of his horse. And then Jesus speaks to Saul. But do you remember what he says? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, stop persecuting my people. He doesn't say to Saul, 
Saul, Saul, stop persecuting these Christians. They're, they're my people. He says, Saul, Saul, stop persecuting me. He sees in what Paul's doing, giving afflictions to Jesus. So much so that Jesus, immediately after that, still in Acts 9, talks to Ananias, who Paul will go see, and he says uh, to Ananias, go meet Saul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Those words, I'm sure, defined his entire life of ministry. And that's exactly how he sees his ministry here in this passage. Verse 25, he says about these afflictions that, that he's suffering with, he says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God that was given to me. That is the mystery, he says, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Did you catch that? How does Paul see his ministry? He sees it filling up the afflictions of Christ in his ministry that was from ages past, all the way back from Abraham, to the nations. He calls it a mystery. That's a very important word that gets used many times in the New Testament. It doesn't mean the way, you know, Scooby-Doo uses the word mystery, that it's a, a mystery to be solved. You yank off the guy's mask. And... Mystery in the New Testament is always the answer. That was the mystery. Paul now sees as he, under, as he reads back through the Old, Old Testament, how it is going to happen that the suffering servant is actually going to, through his afflictions, reach the nations. And he sees it in his own body as Jesus works through him. That is, the mystery that has been revealed. This is a profound way that Christ fulfills his ministry. In the flesh, he did what was to accomplish, but then he ascended into heaven. And to get our geography right, heaven isn't out there in outer space. I mean, kids, have you ever thought about heaven as like outer space? It's just like some, maybe it's some other planet there that you'd have to like take a spaceship to see. That's not how the Bible talks about heaven. Heaven is almost like, uh, it's like if you, have you ever seen an overhead projector and you have like one slide and then another slide on it? Heaven is like overlaying all of visible reality. There's a connection wherever there is anything visible, there's the invisible counterpart. And so for Jesus to be in heaven means that he is now as close as he possibly can be to earth. And everywhere there is a church, everywhere there is his body, he is there, present. That is amazing. And that is how Paul makes sense of, of everything that is happening in his life. He views this mission to the Gentiles as accomplishing 
Christ's afflictions in his flesh. Let me draw out two points of how significant this should be in our lives. First, we need to be struck by how profound this is that Jesus, right now, is at work for you. He's at work for you. I mean, again, if we were to read through this passage in Colossians, you'd see that, that's, that Paul almost trips over himself many times with this theme of it being for you or for your sake. Look at, look at almost every verse here, 24. He's doing it for our sake. Or a little bit later, for the sake of his church. Verse 25, it's the stewardship that God has given to me for you. Verse 27, to make, rich, make known the riches of his glory, which is Christ in you. Verse 28, all of this is, that's being done is to be done for everyone. Warning everyone, teaching everyone to present everyone mature in Christ. We reread scripture, and oftentimes we reflect about how profound Christ's life was. How generous, how self-giving this man, Jesus, was. But do you often reflect upon Jesus now so generous and giving and doing things for you in the present? Think about how much he's doing now to bring you the message of the gospel. This is what Paul is eager for the Colossians to get. He wants them to understand this. The Colossians, you have to understand, I mean, they're, they're living in, in what is today Western Turkey. It's out there. They are a church composed of outsiders, completely composed of outsiders. They're Gentiles. Their world is paganism. Every one they know worships in a pagan temple. Their life revolves around that. They didn't have any of the Old Testament stories. They didn't have Sunday school that taught them all about what they needed to learn about God and who he was. They didn't have all the, the songs that they could sing that, that would teach them all that they should believe. And we need to hear this. Because when they get this message about this Jewish guy, who lived on the other side of the world in Israel, in this obscure country, 20 years before, they are going to ask the question, how in the world is this relevant to us? And we face that problem today, increasingly, in this post-Christian society. We have to ask, what does this have to do with us? There are people cynical who look at Christ and think that they can marginalize him because he's historical. Because in some way that, that we will never be able to understand the real Jesus because he was back then in ancient history. And in fact, we have seen plenty of horrible examples of people saying, well, I'll tell you what Jesus is like, and they co-opt him for their own agendas, constantly substituting themselves for Jesus. But amazingly, graciously, the risen and ascended Jesus will not be displaced. 
He won't allow it to happen for his people. He has worked very hard and crafted in his ascension ministry, giving the spirit to his church wherever it exists so that we can really now know him. Christ is actively working for you. Think about all that he has done to ensure that you have received the gospel. He doesn't require you to study uh, ancient Hebrew or Aramaic. He doesn't uh, require you to get a PhD in ancient history. If that's your calling, good for you. But that wasn't a requirement for, I realize I may be talking to people who are in that boat. That is not a requirement for you to hear the gospel. He doesn't require you to conform to one nationality or one demographic. I mean, think about that. If you're a woman, there have always been women who have proclaimed the gospel since the very first day that uh, women came to the empty tomb and saw that it was empty and went and told the disciples. If you're poor, there have always been poor people who have proclaimed the gospel as for you. If you're successful, if you're wealthy, if you're old, if you're young, if you're struggling, it doesn't matter. There have always been people in who had the gospel deep down in their soul and have proclaimed it. You know, there are times in which I find myself sometimes hearing about the celebrations of other faiths and how, how beautiful some of their, uh, their sacred adornments are, their, their sacred clothes, how wonderful the, the meals sound, that they sit around and eat these sacred meals and the festivals that celebrate their sacred holidays or, or the, the prayers that they give in other languages that sound so melodic and and beautiful, and I find myself being jealous to say, man, I wish there was some like cultural expression that I could say, there's, there's Christianity, come and enjoy this culture that we have. But that's the point. Jesus comes into all cultures so that you can get the message, so that you can get his salvation, so he can speak there's a difference, of course. He comes to our culture, wherever our culture is. But he will never be co-opted by our ideologies. He's not going to be used. Verse 28 even says that, you know, Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He comes in our culture, but he comes to take us out of it so that we might be conformed to Christ in his image. If you feel like an outsider, if you're here today and you feel like, I don't know if I fit in here, you need to hear the truth that Christianity is made only exclusively of outsiders. You need to understand that the family of God is composed completely of adopted children. All of us are chosen not because of who we are or what we bring, either in our efforts or in our culture, 
We are once chosen by God because we needed choosing. We needed his love. And that's the first point. We need to see, we need to open our eyes to see Christ actively now working among us, for us, to bring us to himself. Secondly, I think in this passage, we can hear an invitation to join in, to join into this mission, to live not for ourselves, but to pour ourselves out for others. You know, Paul knew this uh, mission. He knew this ministry of suffering. He knew the hardship, the the famine, the, the shipwreck, the persecution. And he's joyful here, not because he's a glutton for punishment. He's joyful here because he sees what this is accomplishing. Christ in him is now making Christ in you. You hear how he says that? Christ in you, the hope of glory. What a beautiful image he has that he is doing this, this profound ministry of suffering, not simply that he could be close to Christ, but so that others may be brought to Christ. But is this only true of Paul? I mean, if we only had this passage, we might say, yeah, well, that's, that's his ministry. But could it be for others? But we don't have to read too much further in the rest of the New Testament to say, no, this is an image for everyone who follows Christ. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That we become an epistle, as he'll say in 2 Corinthians, of Christ. So I think there's an invitation here, even as Paul is talking about the joy he's experiencing, an invitation to enter into that joy ourselves. And I, I think maybe a profound way for you to, to rethink about what Christianity is. I mean, so many times we hear messages, we read books, we we get inspired about what Christianity has to do for us. And they're wonderful. We, we come to Christianity because we find in it, uh, we find in it uh, a faith that will give us happiness and joy. It will help us cope through hard times. It will provide meaning in a life when there's emptiness. It will provide freedom when everything in the world seems to be restricting us. And it's good to think about what the gospel says to me in my heart. We need to be introspective. We need to look at the sin in our lives. We need to take responsibility for our own growth in Christ that we might fill up and in, into the maturity of Christ. But this amazing picture of the Christian life that Paul is, paints here is a life beyond just for you. It's calling you to live a life for others. In her uh, great book that came out last year called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Rosaria Butterfield uh, talks about Christian hospitality and she makes it a, a just real profound contrast between Christian hospitality and worldly hospitality. This isn't simply being hospitable and kind to others and, uh, and being the good hostess or host that uh, everybody praises. 
for the beautifulness of their house and the way that they're able to minister to others. No, she says that we need to design all of our lives, the messiness of our lives, for reaching others. That's the type of hospitality she speaks to. <clears throat> and she raises the question whether or not we should see ourselves as uh, 21st century Christians, as victims, sufferers of a post-Christian society. And many times we think that way, that the world out there is antagonistic towards us and we're antagonistic towards them because of a difference we have in morality. But she makes the point that that's not really our answer. She says we are not victims of a post-Christian society. In fact, oftentimes, we are co-conspirators. She says we embrace modernism's perks when they serve our own lusts and selfish ambitions. Yeah, sure, we despise modernism when it crosses a line with our morality, but when it feeds our desire to live for ourselves, when it feeds our desire to be selfish, we give in full bore. Christ has come into this culture to call you out of it. He's inviting you to live for something greater than yourself. Serving Christ's church is such a calling that says, yes, there is great benefit to you, but it also calls you to others. I mean, look, serving in Christ's church can be painful. It can be wearying. There are times in which you just don't have enough time. You, you think that, that serving in the church is just a waste of time. You could certainly be doing something more efficient with your, your money, with your hours, with your efforts and energy. I mean, other times you, you think, well, I don't even have anything left. What I give to my work, what I give to my kids, I am tapped out. There is zero left for me in anything the church might want or need. And yet, it's the very call here to die. It's the call to die that can preach the gospel so loudly to the world around us. Paul sees the ministry that he's giving, not simply the ability in his words to say what Christ has done, but he has the ability in his life to say, touch Christ. Feel the amount of love he has for you. As I'm suffering, know Christ's afflictions on you, for your sake. And it is for the sake of others, not to be motivated out of guilt, not so the church staff would think, oh, good, I'm a, a very helpful person and doing what everybody else expects of me, but for the sake of others who need to hear and to touch and to see Christ active now for them. Paul will say that to participate in Christ's afflictions is like participating in the Olympics. It requires that much struggle. That's the word he uses in verse 29 for struggle, like complete, competing in an athletic event. And you hear stories of, of Olympic athletes sacrificing years of their life 
in pain and self-denial, struggling with all their energy to do so. And that's what Paul envisions in his own ministry. And yet, uh, paradoxically, Paul says that this energy is not his own. You hear how he closes this section? For this I toiled, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Do you want to know Christ more deeply? Do you want to know this joy that he speaks about? This joy that can happen even in suffering? Follow him. Follow him in his afflictions. Join a mission that's greater than yourselves. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will call us and continue to call us in ways that proclaim your gospel to the world around us. Use us for your good purpose, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.